Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, a podcast to encourage, educate, and equip you to care for children and youth through adoption, foster, and kinship care. Hosted by an adoptive mom with over 22 years of kinship and adoptive parenting experience, she's on this journey with you. Please welcome Sandra Flack. Search me, O God, and know my heart. That is Psalm 139, verse 23. Welcome to the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. I'm your host, Sandra Flack. I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with an amazing FASD specialist today. But first, I always like to check in and ask you how you're doing. I'm still up here in the Adirondack Mountains with my husband and our 17-year-old son. I'm grateful that we are homeschoolers these days because now we have the flexibility to come up to our camp for extended period of times uh, of time. And one of the reasons why I love that so much, not only do I love it here personally, um, but my my son, as many of you know, um, My 17-year-old son uh, with an FASD um, does so well up here. Uh, He's more regulated. He's less stressed. Uh, I mean, it's not perfect, you know, but it's just better here. He socializes better. We now have a group of friends up here that we've met through a local church, a community church that we attend while we're up here. Um, And, you know, we've just connected with some great folks. I've given my book out to many of them. uh, And we now, you know, go to each other's camps. And and some of them are year-round folks up here. And some of them, like us, uh, come up, um, you know, uh, for the just to get away and kind of have that camp experience throughout the year. A lot of them are snowmobilers, which my husband loves, and they all love Slava. Um, I mentioned last year on this podcast and in my blog about how we, you know, we met one of these couples and we were invited to their house for dinner and Slava went with us and uh, he wasn't thrilled about the idea at first. Uh, But he sat at the dinner table for like three hours with us Um, and just we we ate dinner, we had dessert, we talked about all kinds of things from snowmobiling to hunting to, you know, all that guy stuff. And they engaged Slava in the conversation. They high-fived him several times. They listened to when he chimed into the conversation, which was pretty appropriate most of the time. Um, and he just, I just felt like I witnessed a miracle back then because his normal MO would be to want to go sit out in the car. Like he would eat, but then he would would, you know, flee to the car where he would listen to music and rock. Now, wintertime up here in the mountains, it's kind of a little too cold to just go sit out in the car, especially for like an hour or something. But he didn't even ask to go to the car. Um, I think part of the reason why it was a peaceful situation and he was regulated, there were no, there were no like, other children running around. They had worship music playing quietly in the background. And it was just, um, you know, my husband and I and our son and this other couple. And it was just, he just did so well. 
And like I said, I felt like then I witnessed a miracle. And and really since then, we've had repeat performances of that, even with other couples that we've met up here. And he recently, he and my husband um, have gone snowmobiling with a group um, and he's just doing so well, um, you know, keeping up and fitting into, you know, I shouldn't say fitting in, um, being able to snowmobile and being able to do that safely and to do it appropriately and to have a good time. And they just love him. And he just feels so um, accepted and, 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 and um, supported in that, you know, he feels the love, you know, he says that, um, you know, so he's doing great in those settings. But you know, he doesn't do well when it's a large group, especially if there's a lot of, um, you know, like a lot of chaos, like if it, if it's a gathering where it's even our own family members and there's children, because my husband and I have several grandchildren, um, and that throws him off. He does not do well there. Um, he gets easily overwhelmed still. Um, and if we were home, he would just retreat to his room and not come out, um, you know, and even we're careful with any social interactions with um, peer groups. He does go to uh, our church youth group, and we've, um, you know, really shared with the youth group leaders about his disability. And um, he does well with the structure of, you know, the Wednesday night youth group. Um, but if there's any extra activity going on outside of that where they go do a special trip or something, then either my husband or I would go. Um, with him or he won't go if it's not like a good fit for him to be successful. Um, And he goes, he does belong to a youth bowling league and there are other individuals on his team who also have a developmental disability. So he actually fits in really well there, but he's highly impressionable. So we're just very cautious about, you know, what kinds of social interactions he's a part of, but gosh, here up at camp, he does so well. And you know, recently they went on an 80 mile round trip snowmobile ride with a group and he just did so well and, and feels so successful. And, um, you know, I'm just so grateful for that. Uh, one thing we're not keeping up well with, I'll confess, is our homeschooling while we're up here. Um, while I brought all the books, um, it is a different routine, a different schedule, a different environment. And, you know, he does so well, like many of our kids, with that routine. But if something's different, um, then it throws the whole thing off. So we've been managed, we've been managing to get a little math in and a little reading in. And then I'm just, you know, counting the snowmobile rides (laughs) and other activities, other things my husband has him doing around here um, as, as life skills and kind of counting that as as school. Um, anyway, that's just kind of some of the stuff that's going on up here. You know, we're having some some a, a wonderful time um, and Slava's doing so well. And, um, you know, he, it's just, it, it, then there's other things, right? There's always those things. So that's kind of an update where we are. My grandson is doing fabulously well. He just turned eight months old. My grandson, Killian, for many of you who are following that story, Uh, And he's just been gaining weight, growing and doing great. So we're grateful there. So that's a little personal update on my end. 
Uh, And before I introduce today's guest, we have some important announcements. Natalie Vecchione of the FASD Hope Podcast and Sandra Flack of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey Podcast would like to invite you to join their Hope for the FASD Journey, a virtual support community for parents and caregivers raising individuals with an FASD, diagnosed or not. This faith-based community includes an online bi-monthly support group, a monthly VIP conversation, and a private Facebook group which includes a video devotional from Natalie and Sandra every Saturday. To register, visit justicefororphansny.org forward slash training forward slash F-A-S-D. And coming up on February 22nd, which is just right around the corner from you listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it in real time um, on the day it gets released, um, I am beginning an FASD 18-hour deep dive, which is basically six three-hour sessions. So it's one a week for six weeks. I'm using the FACETS neurobehavioral model. So there's an 18-hour deep dive, and there's also a separate three-hour deep dive, um, also using the the FACETS model. So the 18-hour, the first session begins on February 22nd, and then there's six sessions all together. Then separately, I'm offering a one-time three-hour, I mean, I'll offer it again in the future, but it's just a three-hour session um, to three hour deep dive. Uh, and that also uses the, the facets model. And that one is on Wednesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. You have to go to our website to check out all of the dates for the six session, 18 hour workshop um, to see if that's something that you would, would be able to fit into your schedule. So um, you can find that on our website. Also, every month I offer a free lunch and learn, which is an introduction to fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. The next one, uh, the next free lunch and learn is on Thursday, March 16th at 1 p.m. Eastern. So there's a registration fee, of course, for the 18-hour and the three-hour deep dives. The Lunch and Learn is free, but you have to register for any or all of them, um, whatever ones you're gonna take, because we send out the Zoom link to those who register. We do provide certificates of completion for all of our workshops, so you would get that after the class. Um, And these are all online workshops. I should make sure that that's clear. And you can check out them and any of the workshops that we have coming up on our website at justicefororphansny.org and click on events and you'll see all of our workshops that are coming up. And there's a link to the website in the show notes for this podcast so you can check those out. Also, be sure to check out our bonus episodes with Dr. Jared Brown. Dr. Brown specializes in trauma, FASD, autism, and much, much more. This series of episodes focuses on topics of particular interest to us adoptive and foster parents, such as prenatal trauma, complex trauma, FASD, the impacts of screen time, uh, executive dysfunction. Um, Even we talk a little bit about inappropriate sexual behaviors among uh, this population of kiddos, memory and oh gosh, all of the things, Even, even how sugary sweetened beverages impact 
our kids, or even all of us, I should say. Um, Anyway, regular episodes of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey, like the one you're listening to right now, drop in your inbox on Mondays. The special series with Dr. Brown, we drop those on Fridays. There's about 21 or 22 of them all together, um, and you won't want to miss a single one. So if you're kind of new to this podcast, feel free to scroll through our library of episodes, and um, you'll see the ones that are um, kind of they say bonus episodes, I believe, on there, so you'll be able to to find them. But they are those are episodes that you're going to want to listen to with a notebook and a pen and take lots of notes because he takes us really deep in the weeds on these topics. Also, hey, so you don't miss any of the episodes, please subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening through Apple, please leave a review. Um, that just is a huge help to us podcasters to make sure that the show is easily accessible and found, you know, pretty quick by anyone searching for podcasts about adoption or foster care or kinship care. So please make sure you do that. I would greatly appreciate it. Now, I'm super excited um, to bring you today's guest, Dr. Douglas Waite, MD. Uh, Dr. Waite is certified in developmental pediatrics, specializing in diagnosis and treatment of neurodevelopmental disorders, such as developmental delays, autism, intellectual disability, and fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, and care of adopted children and children in foster care. He's chief of developmental pediatrics, mouthful. He is chief of developmental pediatrics of the Bronx Care Health System in New York City. Please welcome Dr. Douglas Waite. Hi, Dr. Waite. Hi, Sandra. I'm thrilled to have you on the, this podcast um, because I know you're based in New York State, uh, as am I, uh, and I see such a need for FASD awareness and advocacy and resources and supports, um, and I know that that's what you're all about, so grateful to have you on the show today. Um, I am curious. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious to learn, though. Um, I know you're a doctor, but at what point did you learn about fetal alcohol spectrum disorders? Um, I came into awareness of FASDs by necessity. I was working as medical director of a large foster care agency in the city and was seeing uh, a group, um, a large number of kids actually, who had um, a very difficult trajectory of development where things just kept getting worse and worse and often ending up in residential treatment. One of the sites I worked at was in residential treatment. And I couldn't understand what was going on. They were adopted by um, parents at a very early age, often right from the hospital. There was no history of them having abuse experiences that I also saw in foster care. And it just didn't make much sense to me. I knew a lot about psychiatric disorders. They didn't quite fit into those. And then I remembered the 10 seconds in medical school where somebody threw up a slide of a child with FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome. And I went back and looked into this. And the uh, the more I read about this, the more I realized this is what I was seeing. So since that time, I have been doing a lot of education of professionals. I've done a lot of talks like I'm doing with you, but also with... um, 
with other um, parents and professionals around the country to try raise awareness of this and to help get these children identified uh, so that we can get them services. Um, so that's kind of how I came into this. I think that this is not something taught in medical school or in pediatric residency. I'm a specialist in developmental behavioral pediatrics. It's not talked a lot among developmental behavioral pediatricians, and it's not talked a lot among psychiatrists as well. So many psychiatrists don't really feel comfortable or don't know a lot about this. And it often leaves families feeling um, very desperate because medications aren't always helpful. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I know I do remember uh, I interviewed uh, about a year or so ago, Dr. Christy Petrenko, who I know that you know, um, and she too said she read maybe a paragraph in medical school about this and that's it. So, um, and I, I know so many of us parents and caregivers, you know, find find out. I, I had a parent recently who said they brought it to the attention of their pediatrician um, and were told, oh yeah, that's not really a thing. So it's yeah. like- you know, it's, it's alarming. And I talk about FASD a lot on the show as a mom of two boys diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, and I know that there's a disproportionate number of children in child welfare who are also prenatally exposed. Most of them are either not diagnosed or misdiagnosed. And um, our listeners are primarily foster and adoptive parents, uh, kinship caregivers. So but for those who might not know, can you give us that? Um, you know, clinical um, definition of FASD? Well, I, it started in 1973 that we became aware of, um, there was really the first description by Ken Jones and David Smith of a group of children that they had examined as newborns who had uh, facial features and difficulties gaining weight or gaining height and developmental challenges. Um, and they decided to call this fetal alcohol syndrome, a syndrome being a group of things that doctors find on exam that put together, make something that's going on and seem to have a common denominator. For example, Down syndrome came because Dr. Down described the findings on exam of kids that had what we now call trisomy 21, but he did not know it was caused from an extra chromosome on trisomy on chromosome 21. Um, in the case of this, uh, Dr. Jones described this as fetal alcohol syndrome because all the baby's mothers uh, had alcoholism and alcohol use disorder. So this has been called out fetal alcohol syndrome and since 1973. And as you mentioned, there are facial features and the kids often are short or they have difficulties gaining, uh, gaining weight early on. And they have a series of developmental challenges that we now know are the greater number of kids. And it's no longer something about the face or the growth, um, meaning we used to focus just on this narrow group of kids, but we now know nine out of 10 kids don't have facial features and don't necessarily have challenges with growth. They have developmental challenges because alcohol is a neurotoxin that means it kills brain cells in the process of brain development. And that process of killing brain cells doesn't necessarily affect intelligence. So one of the challenges among kids with FASD is that they often don't have the low IQ that we see 
um, among kids that have intellectual disability, um, but they do have marked behavioral and developmental challenges. Um, so this is a, a group of kids that have brain damage from exposure to alcohol before birth that shows itself in developmental challenges like speech delay, but especially in behavioral issues like hyperactivity, inattention, learning issues, and things that often become worse as children get older. Yeah. So you mentioned some of those, you know, primary characteristics, the speech delay. Um, I know impulsivity is a big one, the dismaturity, slow processing of information, slow processing pace, um, lots of things like that, a lot of executive function stuff. What other typical symptoms would we see? Well, the the typical child that has, um, that I see that has um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, first of all, it's very common, as we mentioned, in foster care. So there's very few reasons that kids are taken away from their parents. Um, It can be abuse and, and sexual or physical abuse, but oftentimes it's neglect and substance use is one of the main causes of neglect. And so kids in foster care are at high risk for this, which is one of the reasons that your main listeners are adoptive and foster parents. Um, But this is across the whole population. Alcoholism, alcohol use disorder is non-discriminatory. And probably the kids in foster care, it's more obvious to people to begin to think about it. But in fact, it's very common across the general population. Um, So typically, I do see a lot of kids in foster care. And that is something that I always have thinking about. But all the kids I see for developmental delays, ranging from speech delay, to difficulties with interaction that often is like autism, I screen for prenatal alcohol exposure, because for all those kids that don't meet criteria, for FAS, for fetal alcohol syndrome, because they don't have the facial features or the growth impairments, we need to get a history of prenatal alcohol exposure. And oftentimes that's one of the main barriers to this. So for any child who has challenges with development, we have to look into whether they were exposed to alcohol. And um, right now professionals aren't doing a great job of screening for that. Um, frontline caseworkers and child welfare are not doing a good job screening for it, nor are psychiatrists on the front lines in psychiatric ERs, which is really where we're going to begin to pick these kids up and identify them so that we can give them the specific services they need. Yeah. And we, I do want to make sure that we clarify it's not just kids in foster care or children who have been not. adopted. No. Yeah. And, and, and one, one of my, I have a, a, an older daughter who came to us as a kinship placement. She was a relative. Um, her mom was not an alcoholic. She actually had passed away from cancer. Um, and then my, my niece came to live with me. Um, and, it, and it was challenging, you know, those behaviors that it was very difficult. And then as I began to learn more about FASD because of my other children, I started realizing, gosh, she checks every box. Um, but one thing I do know is her her mother, because of other medical issues, was told she'd never be able to get pregnant. So she didn't know she was pregnant until probably even a good 12 or more weeks into the pregnancy. Um, and, and I believe she probably was drinking socially, maybe on the weekends, um, and, and had no idea that she was pregnant. So it, it doesn't affect just 
kids in, in the child welfare systems, but it's, and I know recent, recent studies just show that it's like one in 20 American school-aged children have been prenatally exposed. So it's something every parent should understand, but it's, it's high prevalence in the child welfare system for sure. Yeah. And so one of the w- things that, that we need to have awareness of is, um, first of all, people with alcohol use disorder are usually very bright, good people. They have a disease that takes away everything you love in life, your job, your home, your relationships, and eventually often, if you're a mother, your kids. And it leaves you with nothing. It's a terrible, terrible disease that we as doctors are not good at treating. So, so much for stigma, all right, because this is a terrible illness. The second thing is that many women drink before they find out they're pregnant. And people find out their pregnancies at different times. So the basis of the CDC recommendation to if you're of childbearing age to not drink alcohol unless if you're not using protection is to try to prevent that early exposure. The brain is the first thing to develop after the egg gets fertilized way before any other part of the body. So early exposure is especially detrimental. Um, if people ask me how much alcohol is safe to drink, I say, how much lead would you drink during pregnancy? Because lead is also a neurotoxin, just like alcohol. So we need to begin looking at it like that kind of a poison. Wow, that's a good, such a good point. Um, one of the things I'm finding is the challenge in getting a diagnosis for these kiddos, because I know, like I mentioned to you earlier, my two boys were adopted internationally. They had the facial features. Um, they had a lot of the other symptoms. We have some some court records stating that their parents were alcoholics. So it wasn't difficult to get a diagnosis. But what would you say to parents or caregivers if they're suspecting that FASD is, is maybe in play here? that they suspect maybe the child was prenatally exposed, how how would they go about getting a diagnosis? Because that's not always easy. No, and I, I would say that um, parents of kids with an FASD are not only the best advocates, but they are fierce at finding out that getting the help their kids need. And so, you know, obviously you'd start with your pediatrician. And you probably will get a dumbfounded look by your pediatrician, even though I work with the American Academy of Pediatrics and trying to educate our um, colleagues. But this is not on people's radar. So you might have to push them a little bit. Theoretically, an evaluation by a neurologist or a developmental behavioral pediatrician or a geneticist can be done. Um, but again, the the variability in how much people know might not give you the answer. So you might leave that feeling frustrated or like they didn't really get you. But um, there will be a day where we have FASD diagnostic centers. And uh, in New York State, myself and Christy Petrenko, who you mentioned earlier in, in, in Rochester, are two people that in New York State, for all of New York State, can diagnose this or diagnosis regularly. There are other people um, that that know about this and do diagnose it, but it's not um, it's not anybody I could say go to this person. Right. And so so you bring up an interesting point because I know Dr. Petrenko is out in Rochester, western part of the state. You're in New York City and I sit not today, but typically I'm sitting in Albany um, and there's there's nothing here and it's the capital of the state. So if a listener is lives in New York State, anywhere in New York State, 
Um, that's they're really if, if they if they don't if they can't get their own pediatrician on board and they still highly suspect and they're advocating for their kids, do they have to go either to New York City or Rochester to get a diagnosis? Well, I mean, I I do a lot of um, I have a lot of patients who live far from the city, and I have done some telemedicine evaluations. Obviously, I like to see kids in person. Um, I think you get a better um, feel for this, especially for the exam part of this. But a lot of this um, is not about the exam anymore. So I think that really what we're trying to do is make sure that the child is getting the services they need. Um, So I think the diagnosis is only as valuable as what that diagnosis can lead to, which is interventions. And oftentimes this is advocating within the school. Um, Again, these children often present with behavioral challenges. They're almost always diagnosed with ADHD. Some people start throwing in the diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder, which I hate. And um, I hate it because it describes how adults experience it, kids who um, are having those issues. And it doesn't describe what's going on with the child that's causing those issues that appear to us to be defiant and oppositional and usually have underlying causes that are not identified. So uh, oftentimes kids are put into this classification of emotional disturbance that I also hate because, again, it doesn't look at what's going on with the child. Um, So I I think that one of the first steps in a diagnosis is one, to get services, but also to begin to have parents begin to see what a different normal looks like. So normal behavior for a child with FASD, just like a normal behavior for a child with autism, is different from what we might expect from a child who doesn't have those challenges. And so beginning to reframe behaviors and difficulties as difficulties that they, not that they won't do it, but they can't do it, that they have challenges that they need support for. The whole idea of a disability is you have challenges, you give supports to help lift you up a little bit. And also changing your expectations to meet the child where they're at, which is very important for kids with an FASD. Yeah, I, I I 100% agree. And that's, that was what I've learned as a parent going going through this. Um, and then uh, I, I read the book, it was recommended to me by another parent of a child with FASD, um, trying differently rather than harder by Diane Melvin. I'm sure you're familiar with that book. And then that I have recently completed my training with facets. Um, and that's, and that's what it's all about understanding those symptoms, uh, those characteristics, and thinking brain, and focusing on the child's strengths and providing those supports um, to help them to be successful, whether it's in the classroom or at home or on a job, um, but but really reframing the way we think about it and understand it, because they're not really going to be able to change. Uh, they don't suddenly turn 18 and outgrow this, right? No, in fact, it, it's something that tends to get worse with age, meaning not that the brain challenges get worse, but because our age-related expectations go up, yes. we expect a 10-year-old to be do, do more than a five-year-old to get ready for school, brush your teeth, you know, come eat. Um, similarly, as kids get older, we expect them to be able to do more. And kids with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders tend to have greater and greater challenges, especially in an area that we call adaptive function. That's the ability to meet environmental demands. 
Yeah, so true. So whether whether the individual or the child gets a diagnosis or not, um, it's, you know, being able to meet their needs and support them. So um, what, what resources uh, do you point families to when you diagnose? Well, I usually give them the link to FASD United, um, which used to be called NoFast, because there's a lot of resources there. In addition, they have a map of people who can help get diagnosis of FASDs. So that's a good site for people who are just learning about this. But also you can learn a lot about FASD at that site, the Center for Disease Control, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics have sites specific to FASD. So you can just Google CDC FASD and you'll go right to their site for that. Similarly for the American Academy of Pediatrics, AAP, and then FASD, you're going to find a lot of information. Um, and I think this is one of those things that as parents read about it and they learn about it, they're like, oh, my God, this is what's going on. It's this kind of thing that nobody seemed to understand this. And this is what's happening. And then you come to the point where I have to get a diagnosis. I have to get people to see my kid has this issue. Uh, and that's the tends to be the process of this. It doesn't tend to be the process that you go to a your general pediatrician and they say, your child has fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Maybe that'll be one day. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Um, of course, it would be wonderful if no child were ever exposed prenatally. Um, yes, you know yes. that's another whole thing. But um, yeah, and I, I love the fact that you mentioned FASD United because my nonprofit has recently become an affiliate member of FASD United. So um, that, that that is definitely and right. thank you, definitely an excellent website um, to be referring folks to. Um, and then, as I mentioned to you previously, too, you know, my boys got diagnosed, but we got zero help. Um, you know, I, I went to the Internet in those early days, and that was plain scary. You know, the stuff that you read there that was back in, in, in 2011. Um, you know, so that's why I eventually became a trainer of the fastest neurobehavioral model more in recent years, because I wanted to be able to teach this. I wanted to be able to to um, bring help and support to parents and caregivers where there wasn't really anything, you know, back in the day, so to speak. So I know that you teach and you speak and you go around the state and maybe other places. So tell us tell us what you do to bring awareness and to educate others about this. Well, I, I, I start really um, in my developmental clinic, I, I teach residents and child psychiatrists in training to screen for prenatal alcohol exposure. To me, that's the single most important thing that professionals need to start doing. I think every kid who enters child welfare should be screened for prenatal alcohol exposure. Every child who gets involved with the juvenile justice system should be screened for prenatal alcohol exposure. Every child who enters the psychiatric hospital or is seen in the ER should be screened. Um, so that would be my dream is because if once we get a child screened and we find a positive, knowing that many times we will have a lot of times where we don't get that history, but a child still might have an FASD, we can begin to uh, establish a diagnosis or begin to look for the other signs that we can find on further evaluation of an FASD. So that's one thing is working on people and training, because I think we have to get the next generation um, looking at this. And I think we're going to be successful with that. 
Um, the second thing, I, I have worked a lot with the American Academy of Pediatrics, and we have developed a residency, pediatric residency training curriculum that we have wow. at several sites where we're teaching attendings to teach residents. So we're really trying to build that model. And I've worked with um, building a, a screening tool that we put out through the American Academy of Pediatrics to get general pediatricians to begin screening. We recommend all general pediatricians screen all kids of their all their patients at least once. Um, so those are some of the things, but I I also just do a lot of advocacy um, here and there. I was speaking today with the Maryland Disability um, Determinations site that we had gone down about six years ago to Annapolis and got Maryland to make all fetal alcohol spectrum disorders a disability eligible for services, which we're working on doing in New York State. Um, maybe this year will be successful, but that will be a huge thing because it will bring services to families that really are struggling because there's not much more difficult than raising a child with an FASD. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> that's that's my world. So yeah. you mentioned you mentioned New York State, um, you know, and when it comes to FASD, um, I know that's a big thing that we want. We want it to be recognized uh, by the state as a disability. Um, what else? What are some of the other things you would like to see? Because I know, you know, there's not a clinic here in Albany, in the Albany area. There should be more, you know, diagnostic and screening clinics. What are what are your big dreams to have here in New York State? Well, I, I would like the net of services that are all in place, meaning early intervention, special education child welfare services, the juvenile justice system, other community-based resources, including therapists for psychotherapy, to know about FASD, just like they now know about autism. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, people didn't really know much about autism, but parents brought this to the forefront. And so people like the persons listening to this podcast are the best advocates at getting this on the plate. And um, so I, I think that having building a web of services where people know about this and how to manage this and work with kids and families that struggle with this is a, a major important area that we still have to work on. Um, I think beginning to educate teachers and um, schools. I do a lot of education with schools when I have a kid with an FASD. They don't know much about it. So I have to send them information on education challenges and how to manage those. So there is a lot of work to be done. Oh, I hear you. And and that's that's exactly, I'm on that same page with you because that's one of the things through uh, my nonprofit and, and being able to even bring the training that we're now bringing for FASD is um, bringing that to county child welfare agencies and to schools. I've had parents reaching out to me wanting me to you know, come to their IEP meetings for their children because the because it's you know it, it's not understood. I, I I did sit in on by phone on an IEP meeting recently, and one of the uh, professionals in the room uh, mentioned that because this mom was having a hard time getting a diagnosis for her son, and you know the, the the I don't remember if he was the school psychologist or if he was the guidance counselor, but he said, well I've I've done my research and this can only be diagnosed at birth, um, which I. <laughs> I was able to kind of very, you know, respectfully 
explain why that's not the case, but, or how that's not the case. So definitely advocacy. And I, I, I agree that parents are going to be key to that part of it. And, and not stopping at that person who said that, because, right. you know, obviously, this is totally wrong. Um, right. And I'm, you know, you were respectful. I'm not always as respectful <laughs> with those kind of things, but it's ludicrous. This is yeah. a lifelong condition. And I have adults that I've diagnosed with this, right? So mm. this idea that it can only be diagnosed at birth really goes back to because he's thinking of the picture of a child with FAS in 1973. Yeah. That's probably where he was doing his research way back yeah. then and not, yeah. and not, yeah. and not, and not current research. Um, you know, again, since most of our listeners are adoptive and foster parents, kinship caregivers, um, you know, uh, what would be, if they suspect an FASD, what would be your best advice? What would be their like top three things that they should do? Well, I think, um, you know, finding out if your child, if, if there's a way to confirm alcohol exposure is important. Um, Look, it's not like you're going to be able to find the video of the mom drinking during pregnancy. Um, But sometimes there's ways of finding through family members. If you have contact with the mother, there's ways you can begin to ask her about this. And I usually start by asking when the the mother found out she was pregnant. Because oftentimes, before women find out they're pregnant, it's easier to talk about that you were drinking. Um, Whereas if you just ask, how much were you drinking during pregnancy? Not did you drink during pregnancy, but how much did you drink? You're more likely to get an answer um, if you ask before you found out you were pregnant, right? Mm. So I think that that's helpful, you know, because you really need that to begin to make a diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. But let's say you can't find out about this, which is a large number of kids who are adopted, a large number of kids who have an FASD or who've been in the child welfare system. If you see all the things and like you said, check the boxes and the the child is like fitting this picture. And let's say that, you know, they were born exposed to heroin or to opioids. That's a pretty good likely fit, right? Because people don't just use opioids. And with all the talk about neonatal abstinence syndrome, very few people are talking about the people use opioids and drink together, right? And um, so I, I think that those kinds of flags are part of this. But the basic picture that of challenges that kids with FASDs have that parents always pick up way before the teachers do. Um, the teachers will often interpret this as behavioral, or he would do better if only mm-hmm. he paid attention, if only he tried harder. Well, that's the point. Why isn't he doing that? Most kids want to please adults. And if that's not happening, there's probably an underlying reason. So I think parents often know there's more going on here. They're just not seeing it. You know, they're not getting my kid. Don't trust those suspicions. And believe me, you're going to have to bounce around to a lot of different people until somebody gets you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is the way it is. Um, So I, I think that that perseverance is really important and then learn a lot about this. I mentioned uh, FASD United, but there's a lot of information. The other place is um, called Proof Alliance that's in Minnesota. Yes, They have a lot of information on their site. And I like their site too, because it focuses a lot on interventions. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is a great site. 
Yeah. Yeah, I've I've often used some of their resources. They've got some great printable resources. Um, you know, when, when when one of my kids started a part time job, there was actually a one pager that I could print off mm-hmm. um, about what an employer should know about yes. an individual with an FASD. So they've got some great resources like that for sure. the 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 last thing the last thing I would mention is that um, talk to other parents of kids with FASD. And just if you can, it'd be great if we had more support groups around for parents, because, again, there's very few things that are as difficult as raising a child with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So I think the more that there's support in parents are often the best educators in terms of, oh, go to this person. Oh, don't go to them. Mm-hmm. You know, guiding you through the labyrinth of services can be very helpful. Yeah, and we've got that. We've we started an online support group. It's called Hope for the FASD Journey for Parents and Caregivers. So um, that's that information is right in on the show notes for this this podcast. Um, because that as as I I was started by myself and another parent who I know you know Natalie Vecchione, um, because we we were relying on each other for support and realized, you know, there's probably other parents and caregivers out there who would like to sit in on this conversation with us. Um, and that's how we started the group so that's been growing and I, I agree you have to you have to be talking with other parents on this same journey because nobody else really gets it no no yeah so as we ra- wrap up dr Wei, and i'm just so grateful that you were here with us today but is there anything else on your heart that you know that you really want to make sure that our listeners hear and know and understand well i, I think and i i always like to talk a little bit about how i think that given the frustration that is inevitably going to come as you try and seek services for your child, um, I think beginning to understand why some of the things are happening, the challenges that your child is having, is an important part of you maintaining your relationship with your child. And I think you cannot overestimate the importance of the relationship you have with your child even when they say things that are hurtful to you mm-hmm. that there's a stability that we know is one of the most important things for kids with an FASD that um so it, it, i know that oftentimes the parents i work with feel that they can't do it anymore but i think that there's more more you're doing more than you realize you're doing in many cases and mm-hmm. i certainly feel like a lot of times the helplessness that parents feel um, in trying to get services for their kids or in just the difficulties in caring for their kids. Sometimes just being together with that is okay. That there's not a lot to do for things. The brain's born. We try to stimulate it. We try to get it to uh, uh, grow. We try to give services to support areas of challenge, but many times just kind of being in that space where you go through it together can be helpful. So having someone like that, I think is very important and having support group is I'm glad to hear that you you've put that together. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much, because it's it's definitely a needed service. Um, and I, I agree. And, and just, bu- you know, building relationships with our kids, having fun with them, you know, goes a long way. Also enjoying them and, and uh, being a support to them and, and parents who are support to each other. So um, I love to hear that. So and, and, and where would the and where would the kids be? if you weren't in their lives for those of yeah. you who adopted, you know, 
because you can begin yes. to imagine what this would like look like if you hadn't stepped in. So, mm-hmm. you know, beginning to really look at it from that other side, I think it's a very important thing because it's easy to feel like you're a failure. And the schools will help you feel that way, believe me. Yeah. Um, but, but beginning to look at how much you've done for this child's life, right. Is an important piece. All right. Yeah. Uh, The days are hard, but when you can keep that into perspective, where would they be? Had we not intervened, had we not said yes and welcomed them into our home? And, and I know for my two youngest boys, we adopted them, uh, from Ukraine and we know there's a war there, uh, who knows if they would even be alive and they're se- they're 17 and 19 right now and um you know I, I, a lot of days are hard but i do keep that perspective as you know but they have a life they have a hope they have a future um and they're much better off here than they are there um and just like any any disability you know i know a lot of parents who've adopted children with down syndrome from other countries and we bring them here and they still have down syndrome but they have a future they have a hope um they have a life to look forward to ahead of them where in other countries there isn't that so again yeah whether it's the child welfare system or an international adoption situation um you know we're gonna have hard days sorry about that um I have a daughter who's in Colorado and she periodically FaceTimes me. I have to remember to tell her not to call during a podcast. <laughs> anyway, um, yes. So, yes, they, it, we are making a difference in their lives, even though it's it's a challenge for sure for us. And that's why we need each other. So we need those support groups. So, again, Dr. Waite, thank you so much for all that you are doing um, in New York State, across the country. Thank you for being with us today. I really appreciate your work. Thanks for having me, Sandra. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I just so much enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Uh, Douglas Waite. Um, Just he just really reaffirmed the stuff that we've been talking about on this podcast and what you as parents and caregivers have been sharing with me um, about those challenges and getting diagnoses and getting supports and services and just how we have to continue to be, um, you know, those mama bears and papa bears um, for our our children who we suspect may be um, on the FASD spectrum. Uh, and, and it's not always easy. And, and really, one of the things that I always come away with is whether we get a diagnosis or not, whether um, the school understands us or not, whether the pediatrician understands what we're trying to say or not. Um, we know, and this is one of the things Dr. Waite was saying, you know, we have to trust our gut. We have to trust our instincts as the parent, as the caregiver, because we live with the child. We know. Right, And as we're learning about the symptoms and the characteristics of FASD, those primary symptoms, secondary and tertiary, things like that we've been talking about on this podcast, we know. And whether we get that diagnosis or not, we can at home begin to change our you know, we need a shift in our paradigm. We need to start thinking brain and not behavior. We need to start understanding that it's not that my child won't do these things. Um, it's that they, they they can't do these things and they need support. So we need to reframe, right? We need, we need to review our expectations. Um, you know, one of the things I was thinking with, with, you know, the dismaturity, how many times do we think, you know, or remember that old, 
school saying, you know, act your age, not your shoe size. Um, a lot of our kiddos have dismaturity where they're, um, you know, developmentally, cognitively much younger than their birth date age, right? Um, they can't all of a sudden just start acting their age when because of the um, impact of prenatal alcohol exposure, um, a lot of times our kids are almost, you know, not straight across the board, but in many different areas, they are um, almost half their age in some in some areas. So um, it, just telling them to act their age is not going to change anything um, because it is part of a brain-based um, condition. And it's a lifelong brain-based condition. So we need to be able to support our kids. We need to be able to provide the accommodations that they need to be successful. We need to focus on their strengths and help them um, be able to pursue those strengths. And those other things tend to kind of come along um, at the same, you know, as we go. So, um, you know, just great. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And, and um, you know, I think it's one one of those conversations that we could go back and listen to a second time through um, because there's such valuable information there. And uh, I thank you for being with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey. And I hope you feel encouraged and supported and equipped um, for your parenting journey today, whether whether you suspect an FASD in your children or not, because we know it's not every single child, but there's a disproportionate number of children in the foster care system, children in kinship care, children who've come in through international adoption. Um, if you're one of those parents or caregivers, this is something you definitely need to be paying attention to. Um, remember that we have uh, guidance for you for your journey. So be sure to check out our website. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the show, and I talked about a little bit with Dr. Waite, um, our, our online support group, it's called Hope for the FASD Journey. It is moderated by myself and Natalie Vecchione from the FASD Hope podcast. Um, it's an online support community. Uh, we also have trainings that we are workshops that I teach. Um, we have free lunch and learn, which is sort of like just an introduction to FASD. So if you're, you know, if you want your child's school teacher or pediatrician or social worker or caseworker or counselor or, you know, youth group leader, Sunday school teacher, whoever, um, to have a little bit of a better understanding of FASD, that the Lunch and Learn is a one-hour free session that you can they can sign up for and, and just kind of get that introduction to FASD. And then I have deep dive sessions, which are anywhere from three, a three-hour session to an 18-hour um, course, which is, which is more of a, it's six three-hour sessions. So, and anything in between. And I come and I do speak and teach in person, as well as online trainings. So I hope you'll check all of those resources out. They are on our website at Justice for Orphans ny.org. Um, I use the facets neural behavioral model uh, when it comes to training and doing the workshops on FASD. Um, so I hope you'll check those out uh, because those are going to be invaluable resources um, for your parenting journey. 
And as I wrap up, I always like to give a big shout out to our business sponsors that help our nonprofit do what we do. So a big thank you to Tri-Nuclear Corporation, Bishop Boundary Construction, National Bank of Kuksaki, Coleman Insurance Agency, and Cedar Shade Farm. Uh, if you enjoy this show, again, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast. And if you're listening through Apple, leave us a review. Would greatly appreciate that. It helps others who need to hear this show um, and hear this information and need to be encouraged and equipped. Helps them find us um, and be and, uh, be connected to us as well. Speaking of being connected, make sure you also find and follow us on social media at Justice for Orphans. We're on both Facebook and Instagram. And you can also find me, Sandra Flack, on both platforms as well. So thank you again for spending your invaluable time, your valuable time with me today. I'm thrilled to have you along for the journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adoption and Foster Care Journey podcast, brought to you by Justice for Orphans. We hope you were encouraged today. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review and share it with your fellow foster and adoptive parent friends so they can be encouraged too. Be sure to find and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Justice for Orphans. And check out our website for vital resources at justicefororphansny.org.